Let's go right into meditation. Please find a comfortable position. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. But as you do so, know that this is really all preparation for one thing. And that is simply resting your awareness in its own state, in its own place, still and clear. Let your awareness be still and bright, and let it illuminate the space all around. While primarily resting, awareness in its own place, do take note of the fluctuations in the field. It is simply a field of space, 
when you directly observe it without the conceptual overlays, the visualizations, the projections, and the grasping. It is simply an empty space. Fluctuations arise within the space, but the fluctuations are empty. There's no substance to them. Where here, in this space, you find anything substantial in the terms of earth, water, fire, or air? Where do you find anything other than empty fluctuations? Empty appearances. And we call those fluctuations, we say that they are associated with the in and out flow of the breath. But where is the in, where is the out, and where is the breath? They're simply fluctuations. And sometimes the fluctuation is long. The fluctuation is long. Sometimes it is short. Sometimes it is short. Rest your awareness in its own place. And peripherally, be aware of long fluctuations when they occur. And when the system calms down, settles down, be aware of short fluctuations when they occur with a quiet mind, knowing non-conceptually, and relaxing deeply with every fluctuation that we conceptually associate with the out-breath. But bring to mind no body don't bring to mind anything other than that is what is presented nakedly. And is there really anything here apart from space and empty fluctuations within that space? Release all visualizations of the body, all grasping to the body, all reification of the body. Let it all dissolve, melt away, vanish like mist in this open space with no borders. Where not even the word body is to be found, 
Then let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze vacant. And let the light of your awareness illuminate what we normally call the space of the mind. But where is this mind? Where is it to be found? Just space. Space in which other types of empty appearances arises empty appearances of thoughts, of images. Let your awareness be still. Like fireflies that appear in the night sky and then just disappear. Observe the emergence and the disappearance of empty, ownerless appearances arising in space. Like an old man or an old woman watching children at play, gently, calmly, but utterly dispassionately, with not even a trace of ownership or emotional involvement of attachment and grasping. Observe the play of the mind, these empty appearances that come and go, with no owner, coming from emptiness, dissolving back into emptiness.
above all, be still. Be clear, be cognizant, doing nothing. Striving for nothing. Being nothing. Nothing but awareness. Which is empty.
So that's a subtle variation of balancing earth and wind. But there's no earth and there's no wind. It's just space. And empty appearances in space, wherever you look. It's interesting that in the Pali Canon, in this account of the Buddhist teachings, when he so many times teaches mindfulness of breathing, for example, at the beginning of his, his great discourse, on the four close applications of mindfulness. It goes right to mindfulness of breathing. And the definitive commentary by Buddha Gosa uh, unpacks that. And he says he's referring to achieving all four jhanas. I haven't read it for about 30 years, but that's what I remember. All four jhanas. And then, having achieved the fourth jhana, okay, now your mind's balanced. Really balanced. Like equanimity. And then, you come out and you tend to your body as the body in these various ways. But it is interesting there in the Pali Canon where the Buddha taught this tetrad, breathing in long, breathing out long, and so on, teaches that so often. In the Pali Canon itself, there's no reference to the preliminary sign, the acquired sign, the counterpart sign. No reference to it. There's no reference to it that I've seen uh, in the Mahayana literature either, not in Asanga's writings, I've not seen it in any Mahayana sutras or any Tibetan commentaries either. Many, many references to mindfulness of breathing. I've translated some of them. Well, I haven't seen any references to the counterpart sign and all of that. So it's not to refute it, not at all. In fact, I'm very, very confident that such exist. But if the appearance of the acquired sign and counterpart sign were indispensable, to proceed along the path of mindfulness of breathing as a means to achieving shamatha, access to the first jhana, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, if that were indispensable, I think the Buddha would have mentioned it, and it doesn't come up. So it's a, an interpretation, I think a very valid, very meaningful, very powerful, time-tested interpretation. So you see, I'm not disparaging it or diminishing it in any way, but if it were indispensable, the Buddha would have taught it. It would have come up, I think. He taught it so many times. So maybe we can go on a little flight of imagination. Imagine you approach the practice as we did there, just basically resting in awareness and maintaining just enough awareness of the fluctuations of the field that we call nominally the fluctuations of the in-breath, out-breath, long, short, and so on. Just enough to, you're noting it. That's all the Buddha said, just note it. And then imagine, whether you're a fast learner like Shariputra, I think he achieved all the jhanas in a couple of weeks, something really quickly. Uh, whether you're a fast learner or a slow learner, either way, you proceed along the path. Imagine, though, that your awareness really just kind of evaporates from the desire realm, evaporates from the whole world of physicality, where it just it fades out. It's just like the world of physicality, the desire realm, just like mist dissolving into space. And it's just no longer there. You're at the center of your mandala, and it's just not there anymore. Because your mind has crossed a threshold, right? That's what happens when you achieve shamatha. Your mind has crossed a threshold from the physical, from the desire realm, sensory realm, into the form realm. But imagine that even when it's absorbed in this much more rarefied, archetypal, abstract realm of pure forms, imagine that there is some 
extremely subtle awareness of that fluctuation. Fluctuation. Not of air, you know, like comes out in, in and out of a bellows, but just that fluctuation that is the fluctuation of in-breath, out-breath. Comparable to, but certainly not identical to, being in the midst of a lucid dream and being aware of the fluctuations of the breath within the dream, where there is no air, where you can breathe just as well underwater as you can above water, as you can if you climb to the top of Mount Everest in your dream, or you go into deep space in your dream. It doesn't matter whether you're in deep space, underwater, or on the surface, you know, on the surface, like sea level. There's just as little air in all those three places when you're in a dream, but you're still breathing. And your breathing, of course, is so remarkable. It is the rhythm of the body lying in bed. So imagine you slipped into then outside of any dream imagery, just into this space, space of the foreign realm. And you're still aware, with increasing subtlety, really unimaginable subtlety, the ever-diminishing amplitude of that sine wave of your so-called breath. So maybe the, maybe the frequency stabilizes, but the amplitude, how deep, just gets shallower and shallower as you go from the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and then fourth jhana. And there you are. Your mind is just utterly absorbed now in the, the most rarefied atmosphere, one could say, the most rarefied space of the form realm. And then the final fluctuations just dissolve. There's no fluctuations at all. Then you've achieved the fourth jhana. And outwardly, an anomaly has occurred. It shouldn't, just like you know, the yogis who, who die in the clear light of death, that shouldn't be possible. Their bodies should decompose, but they don't. Well, here, no, you've not achieved or realized clear light of death, not realized emptiness. You've just followed this course of what's called mundane vipassana. It's Vipassana. From Shamatha, access to the first jhana, from there on, that's Vipassana. Tsongkhapa says, it's common knowledge among good scholars, sure, that's Vipassana. Because now you're exploring dimensions of reality. You're not just calming your mind. Your mind is calm. But you're exploring multiple dimensions, even within the desire realm. There are sub-dimensions within that realm. And you're exploring this by releasing into ever-increasing subtlety until you come to that fourth jhana, and then that extremely subtle perturbation corresponding, if a person is looking at your body from outside, to almost like microscopic breath. I'm sure there, would be, there must be, I don't know, but I think there must be scientific ways of detecting extremely subtle respiration, just because they're so good at that. So I don't know that's the case, but I think they must have ways of knowing you know, something much, much, how do you say, more subtle than a mirror. They must have. The technology is so good in so many ways. But outside, whether you're studying scientifically or what have you, you just see that breath getting subtler and subtler and subtler. And then it stops. Right in the middle. Exactly in the middle. That is, you're not holding your breath. You're not, you're not having left a doubt. 
It's right in, between, in, in the middle, exactly in the middle. Right. Now you have the singularity, so you have the G of the fourth jhana. So that perturbation, that little fluctuation in the field, that was the last trace from your perspective in the center of your mandala. That was the last trace of having a body. That's all there was to the body. Flesh, bone, muscles, tissue, oh, ancient history, from your perspective. Outside, of course, but not from your perspective. That was the last thing, that little tiny squeak, that little tiny micro ripple of fluctuation of the breath. That stops. And if you go any further, you're going to slip out of the form realm altogether and go right into the formless realm. But, for all practical purposes, from your perspective, the last vestige of the body, which wasn't much, vanished into space. You've emptied yourself out, physically. Totally emptied yourself out. Now the second half, and it was exactly the second half. I'm a good timekeeper. It's my Swiss background. Second half of that session was then, of course, taking the mind as the path. We weren't really looking at another space. It wasn't over here versus over there. We're still resting in the stillness of awareness. But we are, again, gently taking note of. But the image, I didn't make it up. It's a very nice image. An old man or old woman watching other people's children play. You know? And with interest, but not a whole lot. And no vested interest. I like to add the commentary, other people... Uh, watching other people's children play with the parents there. You know, so if anything goes wrong, the parents will take care of it. It's absolutely certain. This old, you know, maybe not even a relative, just an old man, old woman sitting on a park bench. You know, like, no matter what happens, your responsibilities are zero. The parents are there. They have cell phones. They'll call the ambulance, police, fire engines. They'll call in the light brigade, whatever they need. The parents will take care of it. So you, Grandpa, you can just hang out and watch the kids play, but with total lack of grasping. Zero. Right? That quality. That quality of awareness. They're not my kids. They're very sweet, but they're not mine. And whatever they do, even if they all hop in the car and drive away, no sweat. I like watching empty playgrounds, too. Like they don't really have any preference one way or another. I'm just sitting on my bench. And I like it here. You watch it until your mind vanishes. The so-called mind. Just like the so-called body. Because that's all it is, so-called. A fluctuation in a field is a body? If you want to say so. But it still isn't any, anything more than an empty fluctuation in the field. And a little thought like a little firefly, like a little spark. A little whiff of smoke coming up and then dissolving. If you want to call that mind, you're welcome to do so, but you know, don't go overboard. It is no more than what it is. It's just a little wisp of an appearance that arises and flickers out, vanishes right back in the face of the mind. But it's not even the space of the mind, it's just space. And so then there's just space, and there's just awareness, and that's all that's left. So simple, yeah? That's the daytime practice of the impure body, that's it, in essence, I think. 
And of course, all your mundane concerns, you've got to get rid of them. I mean, that's just like, like taking out the trash. You know, that's gross. Just take out the trash, dump it, burn it, be gone. But my strong sense is for this first phase of the teachings of the impure, illusory body, it's emptying yourself out, body and mind. So it's just empty, and literally empty. Not just empty of inherent nature, empty, empty, like an empty glass with nothing in it. Empty. Empty of inherent nature too, but empty. Right? We have this phrase in English. It's, it's kind, of a, uh, kind of a, well, it's a, not a pleasant phrase. If we say, you're so full of yourself, that really nails it. I don't know if that worked equally well in Portuguese, Spanish, German, and so on, but boy, in English, it nails it. You're really full of yourself. It's a pejorative, of course. It means you're just arrogant, pompous, haughty, and so forth and so on. We all know what it means. You're full, so full of yourself. Well, the impure, illusory body is to empty that all out. So you're so empty of yourself that there's not even a self that is a container that's empty. It's just empty. And you recall, the Buddha is referring to this as the preparation for Vipassana. It's right there in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's not an interpretation, is what he says. Right? That's what you do before Vipassana. You empty yourself out. And Lerap Lingba could not have said it more clearly, and I even quoted it. It's now in your notes online. Um, this practice of taking the mind as the path until there's no mind and there's no path. Because the mind is dissolved, it's evaporated, it's, it's nowhere to be found. Uh, then you've emptied the space of your awareness, you've emptied out the mind. So there's no mind there. So which is good, so now there's nothing in the way. It's like a telephone booth. You know, the telephone booth and big people. There's only room for one person. And if somebody's already in the telephone booth, then another person can't get in there. And so the first person has to get out, totally out. And then something, another person can come in. And so as we move on, which we'll do momentarily, into the pure illusory body, the impure one has to get out. It has to become completely empty, in every way empty. Otherwise, it's two people in a telephone booth, and that's just too crowded. And it happens a lot. I mean, I've said it before, and nothing novel for me. I don't think I've, I'm certain I don't have any fresh insights that are valuable that's nobody, that nobody has had before me. That can't happen. I mean, I don't believe it. But all of that I've just said this, this afternoon here is all simply a commentary to Om Svabhavashuta Savadama Svabhavashuto Ham. Om Svabhavashuta Savadhamma. Om. All phenomena. Om Svabhavashuta Savadhamma. All phenomena are pure nature. Svabhavashuta. Om Svabhavashuta Savadhamma. Yeah. All phenomena are pure nature. Pure as in free of impure appearances. Pure in the sense of empty of inherent nature. It's dual connotation. Right? So all phenomena, om svabhava shuddha savadhamma, all sarvadhamma, all phenomena, are by nature pure. Svabhava shuddha ham, and I am that purity. 
I am hum. I am that purity. What's that purity? Emptiness. But it's not just an emptiness. It's not just an empty like empty like empty cup. It's the emptiness of Dharmakaya, which is essential nature is empty. Manifest nature is luminous, and then it's all extensive, all pervasive nature is compassion. But its core is empty. Dhammakaya, essential nature, mo, essential nature is empty. Ranjinrisa, manifest nature, luminosity. Tuje konkyap, all pervasive compassion. So, Leda Plingba says, then, this taking the mind of the path to its culmination, till you're finished. That is the basis for all samadhis of stage regeneration and completion. Otherwise, you're trying to fit two people into a telephone booth. You're trying to bring some vestige of yourself, your ordinary self, into your stage regeneration practice. It's just two is a crowd. Two is a crowd. Two is too many. So there it is. So you can't be full of yourself. Not for Dzogchen, not for Vajrayana. It's too crowded. So we go on this afternoon. Not a lot to read. I just want to read a little bit. Finish the daytime practice. The question was asked uh, in one of the private meetings. Aren't we kind of stepping backward here? That is, we went from shamatha without a sign. That's, that's going pretty deep, deep into retreat, right? Withdrawing from the whole world of appearances. And then going from searching for the mind, discovering that the mind is by nature empty, and then identifying, and then looking for awareness and finding it's empty. Remember, there are two phases there. Searching for the mind, finding it's empty. But then even the nuclear mind, just awareness, looking for it as a real entity, as some, something substantial, something real, something you can kind of latch onto, and finally even awareness is empty. That's really empty. Because the word mind, of course, is an umbrella term. It's one of those mariological sums. Oceans, thoughts, images, all kinds of stuff that are very different one from the other. Right? An emotion is very different from a mental image. So the mind, we can say, well, the mind's empty, of course. It's just a word that's being imputed upon a whole bunch of very different phenomena. Just like the word body is imputed upon a hand, but a hand is very different from a tongue. Right? But you can impute, impute the word body on the tongue as much as the hand is the liver, and the liver is the brain tissue, but they're very different as well as toenails. They're very different from brain tissue, at least I'm pretty sure. And so it's quite natural that the notion of body would be empty because it's just a name imputed upon a bunch of whole, whole bunch of very dissimilar things. Right? And then likewise, mind is just a word projected, imputed, simply designated, thrown out there on a cluster of very diverse phenomena, none of which are mind. So the notion that mind being empty, body being empty, it's kind of like makes sense. The notion of awareness being empty, that seems to be really there. That's why the Chittamantrans stop at that point. Say, well, then, wait a minute, we have to, something has to be real. And they had to awareness, and they said, I think we've come to the end of the line. Awareness, I mean, what's more real than that? I mean, 
you break it down into parts and it's little chunks of awareness. It's quite homogenous. When you go to just substrate consciousness, it's not a whole bunch of disparate parts like, you know, a head and a toenail and a foot and a mouth and so forth. It's just a whole bunch of awareness. One moment after another after another of awareness. So that looks like, well, now we've gotten down to something core, something real, something essential, something really there. Until you really look for it. And lo and behold, it just turns out to be as unfindable as anything else you've ever looked for when you're really looking for it as existing in and of itself. So even awareness being empty. And then having recognized the emptiness of inherent nature of awareness, now you're rec- ready, you're poised. You're, right on, you're like standing right on the edge of a cliff and something can just nudge you and then you fall over. Right? If you've gotten that close, if you've achieved shamatha, gain some genuine insight, into the emptiness of your mind. Beyond that, some emptiness, into the emptiness of awareness. If you've gone that far, and then somebody gives you pointing out instructions, the bottom will drop out. Then you'll identify who you are. Rigpa, then pristine awareness. So we've gone that far in that first bardo. That seems quite far right down to the ground of being, right down to primordial consciousness. And then coming back to uh, dream yoga. It's like, isn't, isn't this kind of like, shouldn't this be reverse? You need to do, do dream yoga? I mean, it seems like a lot coarser and kind of fun and games. You know, let's do transformation, emanation. Let's turn into Mr. Magoo. Let's walk through a wall. You know, let's do all these fun things. When you've tapped into the ground of being, what are we playing around with these little mundane cities for in a dream? It seems like kind of a trivial afterthought, isn't it? Well, it can be, as one of you commented to me today, uh, the lucid dreaming just by itself. Uh, you can be as samsaric in a lucid dream as you can be in the waking state. Just exactly every bit as much. You can be look craving for the same things, but you just get them easier. So you want to have dream sex? You can have dream sex with Marilyn Monroe. Young Marilyn Monroe. You know, anyone you like. You just conjure them up, you know, anything you like. And so if you want to have full-blown samsara, where it's samsara on call, you know, whatever you want, sex, money, flying, your own Learjet, whatever, you know, if you really want a jet. Uh, So it can be as samsaric as anything else, which means it would be an enormous step backwards from going to the primordial conscious and then back back to fun and games, having sex in a dream, a lucid dream, you know, be trivial, I mean, absurdly trivial. But then that, of course, dream yoga is not simply lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is just the opening of the door which, for which you may potentially enter into the tremendous depths of dream yoga, which is a path. Lucid dreaming by itself, is, I'd have to say, it's not a path. It's just not a path. It's not, that's it. You know what that means. It's not a path. Or if it is, then show it. But I've never seen it by itself to be a path, which is very interesting. And you're exploring domain of reality, which is very interesting. You get some insights, and that's it. But dream yoga, as we're seeing here, well, it has tremendous depth. Otherwise, Padmasambhava would not have taught it. So after you follow that trajectory, it was rather smooth. You might recall the, the coarser, I mean, first the preliminary practices, and then the coarse types of shamatha practice, culminating in the very subtle one, shamatha without a sign, and then emptiness of mind, emptiness of awareness, identifying pristine awareness. That's, that's a smooth trajectory. It's very, very organic, very smooth, seamless, 
right down to the ground of being. Right? But then the question does arise. What do you do when you come out of meditation? You need to pee, or you're hungry, you want some food, or you're feeling maybe some exercise, you like to go for a swim, something like that. Now what do you do? What's your practice now? And your practice could be, I want to do the other stuff as short as possible so I can get back to meditation. You know, that would be very understandable. But then you're slipping off into the extreme of quiescence, right? Leaving really quite passionately, leaving the world of appearances behind, especially 21st century world of appearances. It's pretty grotty. It's called an age of degeneration for very good reasons. And you may look out kind of like a little what's a groundhog day, a little groundhog pose his head up. I don't think so. No, thank you. You know, disappear for a few more weeks or lifetimes or whatever. So you might say, but why? I mean, there's nothing out there that I have any interest in, and so go back down into Rikpo, whatever. But then, of course, you're getting only one half the equation. You're seeing the, the essential nature of Rikpo, which is empty. You're seeing that aspect of Rikpa that is free of action, devoid of action, infinite space, boundless, inconceivable, transcending all conceptual elaborations, but you're missing something. You're missing something. It's called Rikpetzel, the creative power of Rikpa, the creative expressions of Rikpa. All you're getting is what a post-mortem arhat gets, which is pretty darn good, and one can understand why one might not want to leave like infinitely, inexpressibly not want to leave. But you are missing something. You're only getting one half. The jitawa kimbe yeshi, the primordial consciousness of knowing nature, reality as it is, that is right down to its ground, dharmadhatu, nirvana, emptiness, ultimate nature of existence. But you're missing the other aspect, the horizontal aspect, the primordial consciousness, the full range of phenomena the myriad, inconceivable, infinite centers of mandalas everywhere, missing out on that one. But also, before Buddhahood, you're also missing out on what does your own mandala look like when you come out of meditation, and you're suddenly in this field of appearances arising all around. What do you do with that, apart from just wanting to leave and go right back down your hole again? That's where dream yoga comes in. And that's why it starts with daytime dream yoga. Daytime dream yoga is vipassana. Vipassana. It's in-between session Vipassana. In-between sessions maintaining the dreamlike nature of awareness, the illusory-like nature of awareness, seeing all phenomena, all appearances as empty appearances, sustaining that continuously, and totally emptying yourself out. So, seven-point mind training. The literal translation, the one I stick with, is in-between sessions act and as illusory being act as if you were an illusory being. An illusory being is a, is a hallucination or a, a conjuring trick, like, you know, by an illusionist. It looks, oh, it looks like a person, you know, like a really cool, high-definition holographic image. But so cool, like in, in science fiction, you actually can touch it. Not only see it, but you can touch it, you know. Uh, but it's totally empty of anything there. So be that. That's, seven, that's Sutrayana. That's what Atisha says in Seven Point Mind Training. Just as he's coming to an end of his presentation of ultimate bodhicitta. That's the final thing, as I recall. Right? And then he goes into Donglen, into relative bodhicitta. Right? 
Well, that's what this is about. That impure, illusory body. He's saying exactly what Atisha said. In between sessions, be as if you were an illusory being, as if you weren't really there, as if you don't have a sentient being's mind because it's been emptied out, and you don't have a sentient being's body because it's emptied out. And it's just like a soap bubble, like a, like a, like a, like a soap bubble shaped like a human body. And it appears there, you can actually touch it, but there's just no substance to it at all. Again, like the body in a dream. Yeah, you can touch it, you can hug it, you can see it, but there's nothing there. It's empty. So this is the big point. It's a really big point, and we can do it. How long it will take before we have next lucid dream? I have no idea. For some it may be tonight. For some it may be six months from now. As you can tell, that's not a really hot priority for me. That I'm not going to be sad for you. I'm not going to be sorry for you if you don't have an, a lucid dream in the next six months. I've got better things to do. You know. But can you have an immensely rich, transformative, radically transformative, daytime dream yoga practice over the next six months and not have one single lucid dream? The answer is definitely yes. And if you had that, then I'll be very happy with that, very content. Because I want you all to flourish, of course. I'm not here for no reason. So that's kind of the essence of that. Om Svabhava All phenomena are empty, by nature empty, and I am that pure nature. I am that emptiness. Which means you've totally dissolved all impure appearances of your body, your mind, and also that little nuclear self, that sense that I am a sentient being, that we're so confident about. I am a sentient being, therefore I am. You know, that kind of gritty, hardcore, well, at least this I know about myself, I'm pretty screwed up. You know, at least I know that. I'm a sentient being, I'm a human being. I have mental afflictions, they beat me up every day. That I know. I am a sentient being. As long as you're holding on to that, then you're not ready to go on to the next one. You're not ready to go to pure, pure illusory body. And you're certainly not ready for Dzogchen, but you're not ready for Vajrayana in general either. As long as you're still holding on to and reifying that sense. But after all, you know, I really am a sentient being. And I really like imagining myself as Chakrasambhara, or Tara, or Manjushri. Or I really get a kick out of Padmasambhava. It, it, it suits me well. Kind of like a really good tuxedo. You know, I like the Padmasambhava tuxedo, especially that Katanka. It's got real class. Like, very macho. Very, very macho. We men like macho stuff. You know. Women, I think you must really like. She's got curves. Vajrayagini, Tara, they got, they got all the curves in the right places. <laughs> and they always remain 16, which is very nice. <laughs> Empty yourself out. Don't make Vajrayana a joke. Really crucial. I've said it before, but by it bears repeating because we easily forget it. So eager to move on to more advanced practices. So let's go now to page one forty-eight. The commentary starts way on page one forty-six. The pure, pure illusory body. We go right to the root text, but by all means, drench your mind. And Gatchadamucha's wonderful commentary. So, but we're assuming you've really done the work that you've emptied yourself out, and in these crucial ways, that even the nominal sense, let alone a reification, I really am a sentient being, 
for this even the nominal sense. You've heard me say this with respect to Dzogchen. Well, it's equally true for Vajrayana in general. You really need to dissolve completely without trace even the nominal sense, I am a sentient being. And you can only do that, you can do that if and only if you recognize that you as a sentient being exist only independent upon conceptual designation. Prior to and independent of conceptual designation, you're not a sentient being. If you were, then you would be inherently a sentient being, which means you'll be inherently a sentient being forever. If you're inherently a sentient being, you'll never become a Buddha, because you're a sentient being. So it's only because you're empty of being a sentient being that you have any possibility of manifestly achieving enlightenment. Right? But this point, to release even the slightest vestige, the last vestige of even the nominal clinging or designation, do I have this body? impure appearances. I have this mind, impure appearances. And I am the person who has that body and mind, and I'm a sentient being. All has to be released, vanished, totally gone, dissolved. Yeah. Otherwise, you haven't even started the Vajrayana practice, because the Vajrayana practices begins with omens and then everything after that. But without that, you just don't have Vajrayana at all, and you certainly don't have Dzogchen. So that's what we're going into right now. It looks a, a, a great, a very much like stage regeneration practice. And that's because it is. And stage regeneration practice begins as all Vajrayana practice must. And that's with bodhicitta. So cultivate bodhicitta as you did before. And position your body in the cross-legged posture. The guru should sit upon a throne adorned with the garb of Vajrasattva. So if you could really do this, you have all of the accoutrements, then the guru would be sitting on the throne and then adorn the sambhogakaya, the crown and the, all the ornaments and so forth, the, the silken garments. You know, Tibetans really had that. A really well-equipped well monastery would have all of that for their charm dances and so forth. So the lama would actually you know, put on all the garb uh, as if Vajrasattva, five-pointed crown, the whole, whole nine yards. Uh, to look as much like Vajrasattva as possible. So that's what you do. We're a bit short on the Sambhogagaya garb here in Phuket. Um, so so that's, this is how you do it optimally. And then the students, the disciples, should hold a crystal up to their eyes, a quartz crystal, and look at the body of Vajrasattva through the crystal. And by so doing, the body of Vajrasattva, composed of the five kinds of rainbow light, it is a crystal with refracted light, of course, coming through it, will appear in two, three, or more places. So you all know what that looks like. Meditate on that glorious body, which appears but is without, inher without an inherent nature as your mental object. That's the fourth session. So it's very simple, very deep. It's looking upon your guru as Vajrasattva. But then the refraction issue is interesting, of seeing these multiple images coming up. And when you see that, if you just look through a, a, a piece of glass at this stylized or elegant form of your guru as Vajrasattva, then you can think, well, you know, but there he or she is. Right, right there, I can see him, right through the glass, like through a pair of eyeglasses. But if it's through this prism where you're getting these multiple images, then it immediately becomes apparent that for these, at least for the other images, there's nothing there. I mean, they're really like reflections in a mirror, but, or they are exactly what they are, just images that are cropping up because you're looking through this crystal. But you'll notice that 
the image that you started with is actually no more real than these other ones that are popping up. Now, there's a nice metaphor there, and it's worth lingering on. We don't have a lot to read here today. Um, the whole notion of root guru, root guru, tsawailama, sadguru, has different meanings. One of them is very straightforward. There are two types of lama, gyube lama, tsawe lama. The tsawe lama is kind of the lama that you actually have contact with, who is alive while you're alive, and you receive some teachings. Optimally, empowerment, transmission, and teachings, guidance, menga upadesha. And the, the gyube lama are the lineage lamas. And those are the ones you may very well not have any contact with. In fact, kind of by definition. If you have direct contact, that's a root lama, whereas... For example, one of the earliest lamas that I trained with, still very much my lama, Geshe Raptan, his lama was Jamba, uh, Jamba, Jamba Kidup, Geshe Jamba Kidup. I never met him. He never made it out of Tibet. But he's absolutely the Zawe Lama of Geshe Raptan when he was training as a young monk. Uh, but I never met him. He spoke, Geshe Raptan had tremendous guru devotion for him. I mean, really, he writes about it in his biography. Uh, but I never met him. So. Geshe Jama Kidup, he's my lineage guru. And his guru, his guru, his guru, going back, all the way back to Buddha Shakyamuni, they're all lineage. But the one that, the last domino that touched me, that's the root lama. Right? But then, of course, I have many root lamas. So that's one way of understanding. The lineage, you don't have direct contact with. The root, you have direct contact with. But whether that's your local, if you're living in Tibet, your local lama that teaches you, let's say, Bodhicharvatara, or it's a visiting great, great Brahma Lama who comes with a hundred men, people in his entourage and you know, fanfare and all of that. Well, they're both your root Lama if you're having direct contact with both. So that's one meaning. But the other meaning, and a bit more common, but that is one meaning. The other one is that you may have, most of us do, I certainly do, have more than one Lama. But there may be one. It doesn't have to be. But there may be one Lama that you just feel more so than any other, a deep sense of faith, of reverence, of pure vision, I'll leave it at that, yeah. Just a very strong heart feeling, a feel of trust, blessings are received, your vision is as pure as you can possibly make it. As one person commented to me not long ago, when I think about His Holiness Dalai Lama, I think Buddha. Good. But I would say it's very possible for that person that Dalai Lama is your root Lama. If you can look on any living human being, and have that sense from your heart. That's a Buddha. Of course, gender is absolutely irrelevant. Just have to say that, you know. Because we often say he, 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 just by default mode. You know? Well, then that's good. That's fantastic. If you can have that pure vision, as Condola did when she actually saw a thousand-armed Chenrezig in a Mercedes. You know, pure vision. Well, there's no question about who her root lama is. Extremely, ex extremely clear. Explicit. Not all, but most people practicing in the Tibetan tradition. We have more than one lama. So the lama that you're root lama, the one for whom you have the purest vision, the strongest conviction, the deepest faith, here I'm encountering the Buddha. And if you're practicing Vajrayana, it really, you have to see that deep. You can't still be reifying and seeing it as just a really good person or someone higher than you or a really fine bodhisattva. If you're practicing Vajrasattva, if you're practicing Vajrayana, then it's not just higher than you. It's not an Arya Bodhisattva. It's, it's either a Buddha or you're not practicing Vajrayana. It's kind of like, it's a package deal. But if you have that with respect to one, 
And it doesn't really matter all that much. Whether it's a lama you've only seen from afar, maybe with 10,000 people, or a lama for whom you're serving as the personal attendant. Your root lama can be one you've only seen once or twice in, a, in, in your lifetime. It's good to have some contact, you know, some. That can be a root lama. But it is where the faith is most deeply moved, so I won't, I won't repeat that again. But then that would be as you're gazing through the crystal, seeing this one image that's maybe the one you started with. Like, well, that, that's the lama right there in that Vajrasattva garb, right? But then you see these other refractions, these other images, boom, 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 like that. And then you see, but they're actually not other than the root image. And this is where perhaps, for example, his own Dalai Lama or Gawakamapa, Dujum Rinpoche, doesn't matter who, great Lama, a great Lama, renowned Lama, could indeed be your root Lama. It's very good, I mean, very powerful karmic connection to have that with such a sublime being. But then for your other lamas, maybe one you just learn more, the more basics, like the ten non-virtues, or Bodhicharavatara, basic, but you know, there it is, incredibly rich dharma, or so many other aspects. Then the authentic Vajrayana attitude here is you're seeing all of these others as reflections of the one. So what you're absolutely not doing is seeing, well, my lama is really high, and then, my, then I have the second-class second lama, and the third-class lama, and the fourth-class lama, and then there's the one that just taught me, you know, he just taught me, I don't know, Four thoughts that turn the mind. That's all he taught me. So he's kind of like, he's a corporal. You know, not the general. He just, well, if you didn't, then you've missed the whole point. Because then it's just, it's just ordinary attachment. <laughs> just ordinary attachment. So then miss the whole point. Seeing them all as reflections. Then that's authentic. So that corresponds to this. Looking through the prism. And so meditate on the glorious body which appears but is without inherent nature as your mental object, and that is the fourth session. So this is really, it's really crucial. I mean, it's so strongly emphasized, emphatically emphasized, and with no exceptions. I've received a fair amount of teaching over, I don't know, 40 years and more, and read a fair number of texts, and received guidance on meditation manuals, quite a number. There just aren't any, any exceptions. They're not ones, well, by the way, you know, you don't necessarily have to have that guru yoga in this aspect of Vajrayana practice. Or in this school of Dzogchen, you don't really need the guru that much, you know. Even Dujum Lingma, who said he never had a human guru, he had lots of gurus. Saraha, Longjamrapjamba, Padmasambhava, Mandarava, he had lots of gurus. They just appear all in pure vision. That was good enough. So if you're there, then good. I never heard of a Sangha ever having a human teacher. I never heard of Shantideva having a human teacher. Might I never heard of one. If you're there, that's good. But you still have a teacher. You still have a lama. They just don't happen to be physically formed. But there's an advantage if you can have. I mean, if you're there, then what can you say? You just start bow- I would just start bowing. But there can be an advantage of having a root lama and having that pure vision. And the lama actually has a body. Actually has a body. You know. uh, if you can develop pure vision there, then you're primed for what we're about to read. Because you have, you have a body. You know, when you've come out of meditation and you've reformed, and there, oh yeah, that's flesh, that's bone. You get old, yes, yeah, that's, that's my rheumatism, oh yeah, that's my you know, gray hair, and so forth. So we'll move on. We'll see, there's not much to read today. So on page 149. So that's the fourth session we just finished. Then let that divine body, okay, the one you've been attending to, the guru, 
verse, body, speech, and mind, indivisible from that of your yidam, indivisible from samatabhadra. Let that divine body, a body that appears but is without an inherent nature, clearly arise as your mental object. In other words, you're visualizing it now, right? So first you're really saturate, you're really gazing with your eyes, and then having made a deep imprint, close your eyes, and now something of a replica, something of reformation in your mind, now it's a mental object. Imagine, so you bring this mental object, now this mental replica of the guru's body, bring it to mind, and imagine it dissolving into your own body, and clearly imagine your own body being like that. You take on the same form. So if it was Vatrasattva there, it's Vatrasattva here. Now bear in mind, it's not you looking like Vatrasattva. Right? Because then you've got two people in the telephone booth again. So you've got to really empty out. It's an empty telephone booth. And then in that emptiness, then yes, you know, what you're dissolving into is this empty form. Not with liver and spleen and gallbladder and all that kind of stuff. Inherently existent, stuffy, and full of impure objects. And then you invite, invite let's say, Vajrasattva into that, that sausage. That's what the human body really is, right? It's just sausage. <laughs> Skin and a bunch of internal organs. <laughs> it's, a, it's a walking, talking sausage <laughs> that eats and poops. I just described the human body. It's a sausage that eats and poops. And if it poops, you know what's inside the sausage. <laughs> so you've really got to dissolve that sausage <laughs> into total emptiness. So that when they <laughs> really, it's such a disgusting image of inviting Vajrasatha into a poop-filled sausage and saying, feel right at home. <laughs> there's, room enough, there's room enough for both of us in here. <laughs> you know? It's really disgusting. And if that's disgusting, think what it's like to bring Vajrasattva's mind into your mind. Which is yuckier? Your body or your mind? <laughs> really, sorry, but I can just imagine what, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. <laughs> don't make me. <laughs> so make sure it's empty. Really make sure it's empty. And then the indivisibility of your body, speech, and mind with that of the guru. When your body, your body, mind is like an empty soap bubble, that's perfectly fine. Then bring Vajrasattva there. Empty soap bubble of your body, your speech, and your mind. Then there's plenty of space, total dissolution, space fills space, and then you are. Then you can take on now pure vision and divine pride with respect to yourself. So when you meditate and train yourself in seeing the whole of the... I'm going to retranslate. When you meditate and train yourself in seeing all physical worlds and their sentient inhabitants as being like that, you are adept in the practice of the pure body. Oh, the the, uh, parallels just flow out. And the close application of the mindfulness to the body, a lot of emphasis to your own body, your body with all the internal organs, impurities, and so forth and so on, with the five elements and rising and passing and so forth and so on. A lot of, quite rightly, a lot of emphasis on that. But it's good to know, not my interpretation, it's good to know that in this foundational practice, I love going back to the foundation, 
in the foundational practice, the close application of mindfulness to the body is not just your body. It's a body of others. But it's not just a body of this body, that body, that body. It's all bodies. It's mountains and fields, clouds, sky, everything. The whole of the physical world is the body. And so you're closely applying mindfulness to the entire physical world. Nothing's left out. And, and your body is simply in the center of that. right? So the Buddhas remember that statement, in this fathom-long body I see the rising and so forth and so on, of the whole of the, of the world. So, so in other words, this, this pure vision is not just this indivisible dissolution, dissolution, emerging, dissolving, of the pure body, speech, and mind of the guru, as Vajrasattva, with your own. And so there's simply an indivisibility there, a complete saturation, a complete filling of, one can say, divine presence, an infusion, infusion. I just encountered that term in the translate, text I've been translating, an infusion of rikpa. It's not just that, but just as rikpa is not simply pristine awareness, but also is, how do you say, a bountiful source of all creative displays, right? of rikpa, all appearances, being the effulgences, the expressions of rikpa. Well, likewise, you dissolve into this purity of your own body, speech, and mind, indivisible body, from the body, speech, and mind of your guru, indivisible from that of, let's say, Vajrasattva. But then as you attend outwards to the rest of the mandala all around you, then if you maintain that same purity of vision, number one, rooted in emptiness, that there's nothing out there, in and of its nature. None of these impure appearances uh, are really there, but of course you've dissolved them all. In Vajrayana practice, you've dissolved all impure appearances, not just out of your own body, speech, and mind. So when you're coming out, you're coming out into this pristine field, this primordially pure field of open expanse, of emptiness, non-dual from Dharmakaya. And in that divine holographic field, then you view all appearances with that pure vision. And then you're practicing. Then you become adept at pure illusory body. They're still as illusory as the impure ones, just as illusory, just as empty of inherent nature, but these are pure. Right? But the impure has to be dissolved first. That cannot be overemphasized. So I'll keep on saying it and saying it, because we can easily forget it. So during the transitional process, when the peaceful and wrathful bodies appear, you'll surely be re- liberated Okay, commentary. There's six bardos, right? So there's a bardo of living, there's a bardo of dreaming, there's a bardo of dying, culminating in the clear light of death. But then right after that, uh, then there's the bardo of the dhammata, relatively brief in duration, extremely archetypal in a very, very deep, transcendent sense. And that's where you get all the imagery of the peaceful and wrathful emanations of Rigpa, peaceful and wrathful deities, 108 of them. And uh, they're all nothing other than expressions of your own awareness, pristine awareness, not your substrate consciousness, not your mind. They're all coming straight from, without mediation, they're just coming straight up. I can't say without mediation, but they're coming straight up. Their source is. Their source is primordial consciousness. And they're coming up in these archetypal, peaceful and wrathful manifestations. And during that relatively brief bardo, you either do or do not recognize them as expressions of your own awareness, to see them as yourself, 
If you don't, then you'll just respond to them in a reified fashion. You'll be completely deluded, and you'll just pass on. And it will be an opportunity missed. It's called the, the transitional process, or bardo of damata. That's where the peaceful and wrathful come. That's what he's referring to right now. So if you've maintained this pure vision, where you're seeing all appearances, all appearances, as pure appearances, pure illusory appearances, and you've become familiar with that, you're drenching in that, you're in the flow of that from day to day, year to year, and then you slip through the dying process, and then you slip through the clear light of death, and you're slipping into the bardo of damata, well, all of that habituation, that familiarization of seeing empty, pure appearances, which are nothing other than displays of your own pristine awareness, well, that will carry right through. And then you'll recognize them all as reflections of yourself. And then you'll be liberated as Sambhogakaya, which has got to be a good thing. Okay. So you'll, be surely, you'll surely be liberated. Thus, the main part of the practice of the transitional process of living, that's back there with Shamadeva Vipassana, right? The main part of the practice of the transitional process of living is just this. This is, this is what it's all for. Okay. And the preliminary practice for the and the preliminary practice for the transitional process of dreaming, which we're right in now, of course, and of ultimate reality, Dhammata, depends on this alone. So it really is all coming back to this pure vision. It's always coming back to that. And the pure vision is pure vision if and only if. There's no reification, and reification not simply because you decided to stop reifying, but because you see, you know, you have ascertained the emptiness of all appearances. So, everything depends on that. So, this is a short paragraph, but you can see that he's weighting it very, very heavily. So, strive in this most diligently, to put it mildly. In addition, the impure illusory body is crucial to the preliminary practice of the transitional process of becoming. Okay, now, if you do not achieve liberation by way of the Sambhogakaya in the transitional process of ultimate reality, Dhammata, then you move on. And what immediately follows that is what we just generally call the bardo. You've all read about it. It's been depicted in movies, I'm sure, and so forth. Uh, and there's scientific evidence for it coming out of the Division of Perceptual Studies in Virginia. We have some very clear evidence of the bardo, rather similar. I've written about it in my book, Mind in the Balance. You can see the parallels. See them for yourself. There's references to it, oddly enough, or interestingly enough, in the Pali Canon. And I've given the exact citations there as well. So that's the, so simply the bardo, the intermediate state. But it, more specifically, it is the transitional process of becoming of becoming. Now you're really on the move. You really, once again, now you're a doa. You're a, a mover. And that is, you're on the move. You're moving away from the existence that you died from, and you're definitely on your way someplace else. And there on hangs the tail. Where are you going? What is it you want? What are your aspirations? What attracts you? What appeals to you? Right? And you will have impure appearances. Most likely. I mean, you're going to have impure appearances. Uh, in which case, then to see impure appearances as being empty, illusory, would serve you extremely well. So in a nutshell, just one statement. In traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice, what's the primary reason for practicing dream yoga? To prepare you for the bardo. So you can become lucid in the bardo and make wise decisions. That's the reason right there. It's not fun and games multiplying yourself, flying, having dream sex, and so forth. 
it's really all preparation. It's mundo for the bardo. Optimally, to recognize the peaceful and wrathful as reflections of your own pristine awareness and achieve enlightenment there. But if you don't make that cut, and then you're in the bardo bardo, the ordinary bardo becoming, then now it's longer. It's longer. It really lasts some time. In which case you have a more leisurely opportunity to radically transform that. So in addition, the, illu- the impure illusory body is crucial to, to the preliminary practice of the transitional process of becoming. So both of these illusory bodies are main practices of the transitional process. And this is the natural liberation of appearances through the instructions on the illusory body, samaya. So he's just finished. That's that. Very simple, few words, very deep. And we can practice all of that. There's nothing holding us back. We don't have to wait for the lucid dream. So there's that. Let's see if I can get at least one of these questions. I think this maybe this one's been around for a while. Can you please explain more about the process of merging when it's not visualizing or imagining? Is there anything to do besides resting there? It always feels to be merging has already happened. So this is from Beata, and we have had that conversation. I think it's quite clear, yeah? But just for everybody else, just this whole notion of uh, merge your mind with space, dissolve your mind with space, release your mind into space. I'm using those interchangeably. It's like pouring one glass of water into another glass of water, right? Uh, or the mudra would be rather than ah, like that, but just and then it's happened. Just release it, and then it's gone. But it's, it's, you're not kind of thing, finding two things blended together. Oh, there's a, there's a bit of a mind part, and there's some space part. Oh, a bit more mind part up there. No, a space part. It's not like that. It's not chunky. It's not like something that needs to be put into the blender. You know, it's just released. That's simple. Maybe there's time for more. And this one from the indefatigable Amir. So the topic we've been covering, such as the Four Noble Truths, Bodhicitta, and pretty much the whole pursuit of enlightenment, comes across very, as very serious and pragmatic, which makes sense in light of the sheer endless ocean of suffering. Yeah, no joking matter. Nevertheless, I'm curious if and where the concept of humor fits into the bigger framework. It's an interesting question. Contemporary psychology still doesn't have a good look at, on what humor is. For example, here's something in quotes, zeroing of some part of the neural network and excessive energy of neurons is thrown out to the motor cortex arousing muscular contractions. Well, that just sounds like a barrel of laughter to me. <laughs> That's really a hoot. I, I, I get it, man. I mean, just like that, just really, yep. Okay, so you're right. Um, that would be more cognitive neuroscience, but yeah, your point is well taken. I'm certain there are very good psych- psychology books on humor. I haven't read them, but I'm sure they're there. Why not? It's out there, people are interested. Uh, but we're not referring to that right now. So, as you've alluded to this many times, is, is, uh, as you've alluded to many times, this is possibly so unsatisfactory from the first-person perspective because of the lack of the necessary introspection skills for differentiating the micro-components of the experience of humor. So this is getting very deep. As contemplative science does not share this limitation, I'm curious what Buddhist psychology has to say about the nature of humor and its relevance on the, for the path. Furthermore, what's your take on Buddha's, Rikpa's having a sense of humor? Is that included in the, in the basket of spontaneous virtues? Are there records of Gautama or Padmasambhava cracking jokes? <laughs> it's a good question, perfectly good question. The answer is, 
if I knew all of the teachings of Padmasambhava and Gautama, I could probably answer with certainty, but I don't. Um, I can say I've not seen it. Uh, I've seen some phrases in like Buddha Gosa where I thought maybe he's grinning. You know, when he asked the, when the, when the monk comes to the teacher and said, I can't sense my breath, and he says, are you dead? Are you in your mother's womb? Are you in the fourth jhana? Maybe that was an attempt at humor. Not exactly knee-slapping humor, but maybe it was mild irony or something like that. So it was a good question, and humor as a noun. Don't think it could exist. Humor. He's a really funny guy. Or Moran, she's really funny. Got a good sense of humor. That you can say, they have that. Humorous, you know, good sense of humor. They have that. But humor as a virtue, no, I would say when you, when you find a virtue in Buddhism, it's a virtue, it's an invariant virtue. That is, compassion, for example, is a virtue. Wherever it crops up, it's always a virtue. Intelligence isn't a virtue. So this way, we really, there's a real dividing point. Because I was just reading some of the virtues in Socrates when he was talking about eudaimonia. Really worth reading. And online, you can get a PDF of it. Socrates, eudaimonia. Just plug it in, you'll get it. Um, so, but there are a number of virtues there in the, the Greek tradition, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, that Buddhists would not, Buddha, the Buddha tradition would not call virtues. Not that they're bad, it's just that they're variable. So, and I've spoken of this before, afflictive intelligence makes weapons of mass destruction. All right? And can humor ever be afflictive? Sure, sarcasm. Mean-spirited humor, but pretty much sarcasm nails it. And I remember specifically in Shantideva, when he's going through that list of vices, and he said when they crop up, be like a stick of wood, sarcasm was one of them. Sarcasm was one of them. Tibetans don't think much of sarcasm. They say it's like a rock thrown, a, a, a rock covered in wool, and you throw it at somebody. And when you see it coming, you say, oh, wool. <laughs> Until it hits you in the head, and then, oh, then that wasn't nice. So it looks like, you know, it's like, oh, you're so beautiful. And the words are nice until you see it's total sarcasm. And then you see it's total put-down, maybe much meaner, much more hurtful than saying you're really quite ugly. You know, the sarcasm, because it's got that little that superior, that contempt built into it. <coughs> so humor by itself is not a virtue. So wrapping up, um, it's a good question. I have never read a book on the Buddhist view of humor. I think Buddhist scholars are way too serious for that. <laughs> but as we all know, I mean, anybody who knew Lama Yeshe, the Galupa Lama Yeshe, Lama Zubarambachi's Zubar guru, really funny, really, really funny, light, joyful. I saw this Dalai Lama often is not, not only simply cheerful, but often really, really funny, you know. And a fair number of teachers are, and then a fair number of teachers aren't, you know. So if we look through the manifestations, Bodhisattva manifestations, there's peaceful. And some, some lamas, that's their default mode. Lamas, bodhisattvas, call them what you will, but, you know, uh, spiritual beings, people who are very mature in their practice. Some, really, their default mode, they're, they're just when they're, when they're not really aroused to manifest in one way or another as skillful means, when they're just resting in their own mode, some peaceful. They're just very serene. You know, I've met lamas like that's, that's where they live. And then when necessary, for, for example, Kepchitijanarmuchi, very peaceful. Very peaceful. But when he was very old, he was like 80 or so, and quite frail, tall, thin, 
quite frail. He was giving, I think it was a Vajragini empowerment in Dharmsala. And when he made his way to this very high throne, because he was one of the two tutors of the Dalai Lama, you see this old man moving slowly, slowly towards the throne, and then up the steps, and gets on the throne. And then, I won't imitate it, it'd be ridiculous, but then just his power. you know. And then he just goes for five hours. Boom. Young Tanamuchi, when he's giving this whole series of the ancient dead suit, whole series of empowerments. He was, he was, when he was giving them, like 83 or so, he would go on for five, six, seven hours. Everybody else, you know, screaming because they need to pee and so forth. Here's this old man, just booming, you know, just inexhaustible, you know. So sometimes very peaceful. But then sometimes their manifestation really powerful. And then others is this, it's gepa, gepa, this expansiveness expansiveness. Some lamas that I've translated for, one in particular comes to mind, just as I translated for him, I just thought, gosh, he's like, an, like he's got like a cosmos of knowledge. Like just so much knowledge, and just this waterfall of knowledge flowing and flowing and flowing. So it's expansive, ex- and, and, and expands, I'm looking for the verb, expanding. It expands, enriches a nice word also, enriches, enriches in various ways. So some lamas are manifesting in that way. Some of them are very skillful in um, getting money. You know, benefactors come to them, they give a lot of money, and then they get a lot of money coming in, a lot of money goes out. So they're creating monasteries and stupas and retreat centers and starting orphanages and old people's homes and clinics and so forth. Say, whoa, this is like just a fountain of just so much good things coming out, expansive, yepa, enriching, enriching. And some lamas like that. I know one lama, he doesn't teach at all. But, boy, you look at his, monet, his temple in, uh, in Russia. I've been there, in Kalmykia. The Lama doesn't teach. Telutuku. He doesn't teach. But expansive, man, it's like an impressive. They put it up in like six months or so. Like, wow. You know. So some more expansive. Some incredibly powerful. Really powerful. That's what you get. It's a bit daunting. And then there's the one that makes it all uncomfortable. Those of the wrathful ones, you know, the ones that reach out and take our mental addictions and shake them like a like a terrier shakes a rat. And if you're identifying with them, you won't like it at all. You know, the llama that took my llama, picked him up. You know the story. This young monk, my llama, captured him, picked him up, said, "Time to send one of you to hell." Picks him up and puts him right down in the middle of a bonfire. There he was. He's told me this twice. I confirmed everything. He said, that's exactly what happened. Put him in a bonfire. Set this little, cute little boy. Put him in a bonfire. <laughs> Generally, I think it's called child abuse, isn't it? Or something illegal anyway. And Gautam just sat there. He told me he just sat there in the middle of the flames. And it was just kind of warm and pleasant. As he's sitting in there, and then, and then one of the monks, other monks, came to rescue him. Reaches in, his arms got a little bit burnt. Gautam even, even his robes were not singed. So that was wrathful. That was wrathful. But if it's really wrathful, then it's got to have, got to be rooted in profound wisdom, because anybody can be irrit- irritable. <laughs> so just have a, have a grumpy llama. That's not enough. If it's wrathful, if it's a enlightened activity, that wrath, and it may be really intense, may be really intense, 
uh, is all rooted in compassion. Well, if it's not, then it's not, it's not wrathful manifestation. It's just being angry. It's a mental affliction. That's it. So we're finished with the daytime, daytime dream yoga. That's it. We have plenty to practice, and we'll move on tomorrow to nighttime dream yoga. There's plenty there. So for falling asleep, I would suggest one of the three. Mindfulness of breathing to get a good night's sleep. Settling the mind for lucid dreams. Shamatha without a sign to go, actually maybe even be able to fall asleep lucidly and go right into lucid dreamless sleep. We'll get to that later, though. Enjoy evening. See you tomorrow morning.